Section Two of Michael Kohlhaas by Heinrich von Kleist, translated by Francis H. King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On his arrival in Kohlhaasenbrück, as soon as he had embraced his faithful wife Lisbeth and had kissed his children, who were shouting joyfully about his knees, he asked at once after Herse, the head groom, and whether anything had been heard from him. Lisbeth answered. Oh, yes, dearest Michael, that hearse, just think. The poor fellow arrived here about a fortnight ago, most pitifully bruised and beaten. Really, he was so battered that he couldn't even breathe freely. We put him to bed where he kept coughing up blood, and after repeated questions we heard a story that no one could understand. He told us that you had left him at Tronka Castle, in charge of some horses which they would not allow to pass through there that by the most shameful maltreatment he had been forced to leave the castle, and that it had been impossible for him to bring the horses with him. Really, exclaimed Kohlhaas, taking off his cloak, I suppose he has recovered before this. Pretty well, except that he still coughs blood, she answered. I wanted to send another groom at once to Tronka Castle, so as to have the horses taken care of until you got back there for his hearse has always shown himself truthful, and indeed more faithful to us than any other has ever been. I felt I had no right to doubt his statement, especially when confirmed by so many bruises, or to think that perhaps he had lost the horses in some other way. He implored me, however, not to require any one to go to that robber's nest, but to give the animals up if I didn't wish to sacrifice a man's life for them. And is he still abed? asked Kohlhaas, taking off his neckcloth. "'He's been going about in the yard again for several days now,' she answered. "'In short, you will see for yourself,' she continued, "'that it's all quite true, and that this incident is merely another one of those outrages that have been committed of late against strangers at Tronka Castle.' "'I must first investigate that,' answered Kohlhaas. "'Call him in here, Lisbeth, if he is up and about.' With these words he sat down in the armchair, and his wife, delighted at his calmness, went and fetched the groom. "'What did you do at Tronka Castle?' asked Kohlhaas, as Lisbeth entered the room with him. "'I am not very well pleased with you.' On the groom's pale face spots of red appeared at these words. He was silent for a while, then he answered, "'You are right there, sir, for a sulphur cord which by the will of providence I was carrying in my pocket, so as to set fire to the robber's nest from which I had been driven. I threw into the Elba when I heard a child crying inside the castle, and I thought to myself, Let God's lightning burn it down, I will not. Kohlhaas was disconcerted. But for what cause were you driven from the castle? he asked. To this Hurst answered, Something very wrong, sir and wiped the perspiration from his forehead. What is done, however, can't be undone. I wouldn't let the horses be worked to death in the fields, and so I said that they were still young and had never been in harness. Kohlhaas, trying to hide his perplexity, answered that he had not told the exact truth, as the horses had been in harness for a little while in the early part of the previous spring. As you were sort of a guest at the castle, he continued, 
you really might have been obliging once or twice, whenever they happened not to have horses enough to get the crops in as fast as they wished. "'I did so, sir,' said Hurst. "'I thought, as long as they looked so sulky about it, that it wouldn't hurt the blacks for once, and so on the third afternoon I hitched them in front of the others, and brought in three wagon-loads of grain from the fields.' Kohlhaas, whose heart was thumping, looked down at the ground, and said, "'They told me nothing about that, Hurse.' Hurse assured him that it was so. "'I wasn't disobliging, save in my refusal to harness up the horses again, when they had hardly eaten their fill at midday. Then, too, when the castellan and the steward offered to give me free fodder, if I would do it, telling me to pocket the money that you had left with me to pay for feed.' I answered that I would do something they didn't bargain for, turned around, and left them. "'But surely it was not for that disobliging act that you were driven away from the castle,' said Kohlhaas. "'Mercy, no!' cried the groom. "'It was because of a very wicked crime. For the horses of two knights who came to the castle were put into the stable for the night, and mine were tied to the stable door. And when I took the blacks from the castellan, who was putting the knight's horses into my stable, and asked where my animals were to go, he showed me a pigsty, built of laths and boards against the castle wall. "'You mean,' interrupted Kohlhaas, "'that it was such a poor shelter for horses that it was more like a pigsty than a stable.' "'It was a pigsty, sir,' answered Hurst, "'really and truly a pigsty, with pigs running in and out. I couldn't stand upright in it.' Perhaps there was no other shelter to be found for the blacks, Kohlhaas rejoined. And, of course, in a way, the knight's horses had the right to better quarters. There wasn't much room, answered the groom, dropping his voice. Counting these two, there were in all seven knights lodging in the castle. If it had been you, you would have had the horses moved closer together. I said I would try to rent a stable in the village, but the castellan objected that he had to keep the horses under his own eyes and told me not to dare to take them away from the courtyard. Hum, said Kohlhaas. What did you say to that? As the steward said the two guests were only going to spend the night and continue on their way the next morning, I led the two horses into the pigsty. But the following day passed, and they did not go, and on the third it was said the gentlemen were going to stay some weeks longer in the castle. After all, it was not so bad, Hurst, in the pigsty as it seemed to you when you first stuck your nose into it," said Kohlhaas. "'That's true,' answered the groom. "'After I'd swept the place out a little, it wasn't so bad. I gave a groschen to the maid to have her put the pig somewhere else, and by taking the boards from the roof-bars at dawn and laying them on again at night, I managed to arrange it so that the horses could stand upright in the daytime. So there they stood, like geese in a coop, and stuck their heads through the roof looking around for Kohlhaasenbrook, or some other place where they would be better off. Well, then, said Kohlhaas, why in the world did they drive you away? Sir, I'll tell you, answered the groom. It was because they wanted to get rid of me, since as long as I was there, they could not work the horses to death. Everywhere, in the yard, in the servants' hall, they made faces at me. And because I thought to myself, you can draw your jaws down until you dislocate them, for all I care. They picked a quarrel and threw me out of the courtyard. But what provoked them? cried Kohlhaas. They must have had some sort of provocation. Oh, to be sure, answered Hurst. 
the best imaginable. On the evening of the second day spent in the pigsty, I took the horses, which had become dirty in spite of my efforts, and started to ride them down to the horse-pond. When I reached the castle gate and was just about to turn, I heard the castellan and the steward, with servants, dogs, and cudgels, rushing out of the servants' hall after me and calling, Stop, thief! Stop, gallows-bird! As if they were possessed. The gatekeeper stepped in front of me, and when I asked him and the raving crowd that was running at me, What in the world is the matter? What's the matter? answered the castellan, seizing my two black horses by the bridle. Where are you going with the horses? he asked, and seized me by the chest. Where am I going? I repeated. Thunder and lightning! I am riding down to the horse-pond. Do you think that I— To the horse-pond! cried the castellan. I'll teach you, you swindler, to swim along the high road back to Kohlhausenbrook. And with a spiteful, vicious jerk, he and the steward, who had caught me by the leg, hurled me down from the horse so that I measured my full length in the mud. Murder! Help! I cried. Breast-straps and blankets and a bundle of linen belonging to me are in the stable. But while the steward led the horses away, the castellan and the servants fell upon me with their feet and whips and cudgels, so that I sank down behind the castle gate half-dead. And when I cried, The thieves! Where are they taking my horses? And got to my feet. Out of the courtyard with you! screamed the castellan. Sick him, Caesar! Sick him, Hunter! And sick him, Spitz! he called, and a pack of more than twelve dogs rushed at me. Then I tore something from the fence, possibly a picket, and stretched out three dogs dead beside me. But when I had to give way because I was suffering from fearful wounds and bites, I heard a shrill whistle. The dogs scurried into the yard, the gates were swung shut, and the bolt shot into position, and I sank down on the high road unconscious. Kohlhaas, white in the face, and with forced jocularity, didn't you really want to escape, Hearse? And as the latter, with a deep blush, looked down at the ground, confess to me said he. You didn't like it in the pigsty. You thought to yourself, you would rather be in the stable at Kohlhausenbrook after all. Odds thunder, cried Hearse. Breast-strap and blankets, I tell you, and a bundle of linen I left behind in the pigsty. Wouldn't I have taken along three gold golden that I had wrapped in a red silk neckcloth, and hidden away behind the manger? Blazes, hell and the devil! When you talk like that, I'd like to relight at once the sulphur cord I threw away. There, there, said the horse-dealer. I really meant no harm. What you have said, see here, I believe it word for word, and when the matter comes up, I am ready to take the Holy Communion myself as to its truth. I am sorry that you have not fared better in my service. Go, Hearse, go back to bed. Have them bring you a bottle of wine, and make yourself comfortable. You shall have justice done you. With that he stood up made out a list of things which the head groom had left behind in the pigsty, jotted down the value of each, asked him how high he estimated the cost of his medical treatment, and sent him from the room after shaking hands with him once more. Thereupon he recounted to Lisbeth, his wife, the whole course of the affair, explained the true relation of events, and declared to her that he was determined to demand public justice for himself. He had the satisfaction of finding that she heartily approved of his purpose, for, she said, 
many other travellers, perhaps less patient than he, would pass by the castle, and it was doing God's work to put a stop to disorders such as these. She added that she would manage to get together the money to pay the expenses of the lawsuit. Kohlhaas called her his brave wife, spent that day and the next very happily with her and the children, and, as soon as his business would at all permit it, set out for Dresden in order to lay his suit before the court. Here, with the help of a lawyer whom he knew, he drew up a complaint in which, after giving a detailed account of the outrage which Squire Wenzel Tronka had committed against him and against his groom hearse, he petitioned for the lawful punishment of the former, restoration of the horses to their original condition, and compensation for the damages which he and his groom had sustained. His case was indeed perfectly clear. The fact that the horses had been detained contrary to law drew a decisive light on everything else, and even had one been willing to assume that they had sickened by sheer accident, the demand of the horse-dealer to have them return to him in sound condition would still have been just. While looking about him in the capital, Kohlhaas had no lack of friends either, who promised to give his case lively support. His extensive trade in horses had secured him the acquaintance of the most important men in the country, and the honesty with which he conducted his business had won him their good will. Kohlhaas dined cheerfully several times with his lawyer, who was himself a man of consequence, left a sum of money with him to defray the costs of the lawsuit, and, fully reassured by the latter as to the outcome of the case, returned, after the lapse of some weeks, to his wife Lisbeth in Kohlhaasenbrook. Nevertheless, months passed, and the year was nearing its close before he received even a statement from Saxony concerning the suit which he had instituted there, let alone the final decree itself. After he had applied several times more to the court, he sent a confidential letter to his lawyer, asking what was the cause of such undue delay. He was told in his reply that the suit had been dismissed in the Dresden courts at the instance of an influential person. To the astonished reply of the horse-dealer, asking what was the reason of this, the lawyer informed him that Squire Wenzel Tronka was related to two young noblemen, Heinz and Kuhn's Tronka, one of whom was cupbearer to the person of the sovereign, and the other actually chamberlain. He also advised Kohlhaas not to make any further appeal to the court of law, but to try to regain possession of his horses, which were still at Tronka Castle, giving him to understand that the squire, who was then stopping in the capital, seemed to have ordered his people to deliver them to him. He closed with a request to excuse him from executing any further commission in the matter, in case Kohlhaas refused to be content with this. At this time Kohlhaas happened to be in Brandenburg, where the city governor, Heinrich von Gassau, to whose jurisdiction Kohlhaasenbrück belonged, was busy establishing several charitable institutions for the sick and the poor out of a considerable fund which had fallen to the city. He was especially interested in fitting up, for the benefit of invalids, a mineral spring which rose in one of the villages in the vicinity, and which was thought to have greater powers than it subsequently proved to possess. As Kohlhaas had had numerous dealings with him at the time of his sojourn at court, and was therefore known to him, he allowed Hurst, the head groom, who, 
ever since that unlucky day at Tronka Castle, had suffered pains in the chest when he breathed, to try the effect of the little healing spring, which had been enclosed and roofed over. It so happened that the city governor was just giving some directions, as he stood beside the depression in which Kohlhaas had placed Hearse, when a messenger, whom the horse-dealer's wife had sent on after him, put in his hands the disheartening letter from his lawyer in Dresden. The city governor, who, while speaking with the doctor, noticed that Kohlhaas let a tear fall on the letter he had just read, approached him, and, in a friendly, cordial way, asked him what misfortune had befallen him. The horse-dealer handed him the letter without answering. The worthy governor, knowing the abominable injustice done him at Tronka Castle, as a result of which Hearst was lying there before him sick, perhaps never to recover, clapped Kohlhaas on the shoulder and told him not to lose courage, for he would help him secure justice. In the evening, when the horse-dealer, acting upon his orders, came to the palace to see him, Kohlhaas was told that what he should do was to draw up a petition to the elector of Brandenburg, with a short account of the incident, to enclose the lawyer's letter, and, on account of the violence which had been committed against him on Saxon territory, solicit the protection of the sovereign. He promised him to see that the petition would be delivered into the hands of the elector, together with another packet that was all ready to be dispatched. If circumstances permitted, the latter would, without fail, approach the elector of Saxony on his behalf. Such a step would be quite sufficient to secure Kohlhaas justice at the hand of the tribunal at Dresden, in spite of the arts of the squire and his partisans. Kohlhaas, much delighted, thanked the governor very heartily for this new proof of his good will, and said that he was only sorry that he had not instituted proceedings at once in Berlin without taking any steps in the matter at Dresden. After he had made out the complaint in due form at the office of the municipal court and delivered it to the governor, he returned to Kohlhausenbrook, more encouraged than ever about the outcome of his affair. After only a few weeks, however, he was grieved to learn from a magistrate, who had gone to Potsdam on business for the city governor, that the elector had handed the petition over to his chancellor, Count Kalheim, and that the latter, instead of taking the course most likely to produce results, and petitioning the court at Dresden directly for investigation and punishment of the outrage, had, as a preliminary, applied to the squire Tronka for further information. The magistrate, who had stopped in his carriage outside of Kohlhaas's house, and seemed to have been instructed to deliver this message to the horse-dealer, could give the latter no satisfactory answer to his perplexed questions as to why this step had been taken. He was apparently in a hurry to continue his journey, and merely added that the governor sent Kohlhaas word to be patient. Not until the very end of the short interview did the horse-dealer divine from some casual words he let fall that Count Kalheim was related by marriage to the house of Tronka. End of section 2